Oh, Father, how good you are, Lord. Lord, sometimes I, I feel at a loss of words even coming to you, knowing that nothing I can say can add to you. I can't make you any greater than you already are, Lord, but we exalt you this morning. We recognize the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, you are above all else. Father, we need you this morning. We need you to come through. We need you to work in our hearts. We need you to to fix our eyes upon you. As we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would use me, that my words would reflect you and point people towards you and make great of your name, Lord. Father, we love you. We pray this all in your son's mighty name. Amen. All right. Well, kids, as many of you know, today is an exciting day. So Summit Kids, on your mark, get set, go. Dead sprint out the aisleway into the foyer, not to be confused with the foyer, out into the foyer. Have a great time with your field day today. Thank you for all the volunteers heading out with them. We could not make this happen without you. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, as, as Todd touched on, if you've been with us the past couple of months, starting back in January, we started a series about real peace. And we started in, in John 14, and we kind of journeyed together through John 14, John 15, and John 16, which is where we landed the plane last week, culminating the Real Peace series. And if you missed it, here's, here's a snippet for you, the synopsis statement, if you will. Real peace is found in Jesus Christ alone through a relationship with him. Simple as that. Look, you didn't even have to come to church the last three months. I just gave it to you. You can go back and listen to those sermons. They'd be very beneficial for you as we see so much going on in our country, so many challenges and difficulties. You're not going to find peace on social media or on the news or anywhere else, but only through a relationship with Jesus. As I said, I hope you know him. I hope you have that relationship. Hey, next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series. So to give you a little teaser, we're actually going to continue in John, and we're going to pick up in John 17 next week. And we're going to do kind of a mini-series of sorts on prayer, looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer. But for today, we kind of have a little bit of a sandwich situation. So in walks Sam to deliver said sandwich in a single message for you today. And it is this. We're going to look at a teaching of Jesus that he gave to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And this is just days before his arrest, just days before his his crucifixion. Jesus knows that's coming. And so we're going to look at that today. And here's the emphasis of this morning. I'm going to ask this question a few times. What will you do with the stone? What will you do with the stone? We all have a decision to make, not only today, this morning, but each and every day, each and every moment of our lives, we have to do something with the stone. And we'll look at that here in a minute, in a minute, excuse me. First off, let me tell you a short story. As you guys know, this winter was an interesting one. We saw a lot of, of snow. We also saw a lot of wind. And for me, we, we live down in Holland and we have a, a pretty old fence. I couldn't tell you how old the fence is, um, but it's old enough that the wind basically obliterated it in one of the windstorms. Storm came, we lost a storm window on the second story. I actually saw it, watching it, and thought, that thing's going to fly off. And then, boom, as I said it, that thing flew about 
30 feet, hit our garage, shattered to a million pieces. It was pretty epic until I had to go pick up the glass in the yard. That was less epic for my fingers and my toes that I kept stepping on. But aside from the storm window, also our fence blew over. So in the middle of the winter, I was like, man, I don't mess with the snow. I'm from Oregon. I'll deal with that later. So I just threw the fence back behind the garage, and we just had kind of an open concept backyard for a little bit, which I guess my wife tells me is more popular if it's the kitchen than the backyard. But we went with it for the winter. Now as the the weather has been turning, it's been nicer, it's come time to fix the fence. So I know we have a lot of DIY hands-on, great crafter people here. I know we have some professional tradesmen who you guys are like, offense, like Sam, I could have done that in an afternoon. Well, I am neither of those categories, right? So the first place I went, as many of you can guess, it starts with you and ends with tube. So I go to YouTube, I start watching videos, I start researching how to build a fence. I've watched my dad build a fence when I was a child. I'd like to say that I helped out, but I probably didn't. Um, and so as I'm learning about how to build a fence, I, I learned the first thing that's most necessary is to obviously remove all the old stuff and then dig your post holes, right? And then you have to make sure they're the right depth. You have to make sure the hole is the right diameter. You have to make sure you have the appropriate amount of concrete poured into the hole, so on and so forth. A lot of you guys who do this every day are laughing at me and how elementary this is. But for me, this is like, oh, okay, I can follow these steps. So I go get my supplies. I come back get my first hole dug right by the house. And I know, I go, this one's important. This is the corner post. This is going to set the stage for the whole fence from here to the garage. It's about 14 feet that I needed to fix. So I dig a post, I put it in, I drop in the concrete, following all the steps, felt so proud of myself. I put it in, I look, I grab my level, it's level this way, it's level that way, it's a right angle, everything's looking beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a builder now. I go forth to the next post, and then the next post, I put on my cross beams, my pickets. Everything's going great. I'm growing in confidence as I go. But then I get to the gate. So basically, there's a fence here, and then the gate, the other side of the gate survived for whatever reason. Okay? So I get to the gate, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we're basically done. I put the gate on. And as I go to close the gate, some of you know what's... People who've built fences are like, Sam, come on. Like, this is too obvious. Swing the gate closed and clips the top of the fence. And I'm like, what? How'd that happen? And I look and I'm like, it's not straight. It's angled. Why is it angled? And so instantly I'm like, I know what I did. I had the corner post. I had it just right. It was, it was level. I know it was. So I go back and I look. And I'm like, it's level. What's going on? It's, it's perfectly here. This is exactly where I need it to be. I go to the next post. Not so level. Uh-oh. To the naked eye, when you glance at it, you're like, yeah, the bubble, you know, it's between the two lines there. It's pretty level. But when you measured it, it was off by just a fraction. And then the next post, same thing, off by just a fraction. And then when I went to measure the gate, I had a quarter of an inch difference between the top and the bottom of the gate. So you can see the nature of having the corner post was important. It set the stage for the fence, but by not having something to look back to and to continually measure back to, I got myself into a situation that that backed up the project a bit and had to redo section of it, and now it's all done, which is great, but not throughout some, some hard-learned lessons of, hey, just because you got the corner post, you got to make sure you have each of your posts equally aligned back to it. Corner post only does you good if you make sure everything is aligning with it. 
So why do I tell that story? It's not just about me and my lack of hands-on ability to build a fence, although we can laugh at that. But rather, Jesus also refers to himself as the cornerstone, which if you see in your bulletin, that's the, the title for today's message, the cornerstone. Not the corner post, because we're not talking about fences, but the cornerstone we're talking about Jesus. And we're going to look at a parable where Jesus is speaking to a group, and he's, he's told multiple parables in this moment, and this is the culmination of discussing with the chief priests and the Pharisees, and you can assume the disciples are around with him as well. So if you would, we're going to read that in Matthew 21. The text will be on the screen if you have your app, your paper thing, or whatever you got. That's fine. All good. All versions of the Bible are accepted here, but we'll also have it on the screen. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33 through 40. Six. This is what Jesus says. Hear another parable. Right? So he's told one, and I say, hey, here's another one for you. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built the tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So it's kind of an interactive parable here. He's asking us questions to the listeners. Hey, so you know the story. I just explained it to you. So what, what should happen to those tenants that threw out the servants and the son? This is the response. Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet." So a lot going on here. We're going to walk through it in a minute. There's, this, there's the parable portion of the vineyard that Jesus tells. And then he kind of turns his corner and goes Old Testament on them and brings out scripture and then does it again and kind of goes from like, hey, let's talk about this parable to let's talk about you. But first, let's talk about parables. What is a parable? A parable isn't necessarily unique to Jesus. This was a common, te- common way of teaching in Jewish culture. So Jesus used parables often. It wasn't like, oh, this is a new way of teaching that Jesus created. But he used them with a unique purpose. There's a way of speaking that Jesus often used to describe a complex idea in a simplified, easy-to-understand format. Parables aren't riddles or cute stories about morality. But often Jesus used parables to tell people about the kingdom of heaven that was coming. He used normal, ordinary things that they would understand, such as a vineyard, to point people to the kingdom of God. Parables often warned of judgment, but also 
of coming hope, as we see in this parable. Both of those are present. There's judgment, but there's also hope. There's an option there to give into. So that's kind of what are parables. What about why? Why parables? The disciples that wondered this too. Like imagine if you're a disciple following Jesus and you're like, I've left everything behind. I'm following this guy. He's doing all these miracles. He's speaking to all these people. But like, goodness, he just will not get to the point. Like Jesus, just say it how it is. There's even a moment in scripture from Matthew 13. The disciples come to him and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? You almost sense like a, a little frustration in them. Like, Jesus, like, this is your opportunity. Just, just proclaim it. Just tell them who you are. Just say it. But Jesus says this. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew who could hear. He knew who could see. He knew who could understand. His parables were often for his disciples to grow in their understanding, right? Whoever has more, whoever has more will be given to them. Whoever does not have, it will be taken away. Now what's interesting about this parable is often Jesus' parables are very clearly for the disciples and leave everyone else puzzled. This one's unique because as you see at the end, in verse 45, they say, they heard his parables and they perceived that he was speaking about them. So something different happens here where they hear the parable and they realize, wait a second. Is that us? Is he talking about us in this story? Are we the tenants? So let's look at the people we have in the story here. First off, we have the master. The master has a vineyard, right? We know now, easy to look back and say, hey, that's God. God has the vineyard. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. What can we learn from God there? Man, does God care about his vineyard? Absolutely. He takes great care, right? He does all these steps. Now, vineyards were very common in this time, but to have all these things in your vineyard was like, that's like the Rolls Royce of vineyards. To have a tower, to have a wine press, to have a fence around it. All these things. That shows that God cares about his vineyard. He took great care in setting it up. It wasn't by mistake. It wasn't like, oh, like here, like, you know, I just threw together a little vineyard and, you know, someone take care of it. He sets the table and lays it out perfectly for those who to care. So what is the vineyard? We call it a couple different things. We'd say it's, it's Israel. We could say it's the church, right? I wouldn't say those are, are wrong answers, but here we learn later that he refers to it as the kingdom of God. A vineyard would be an understandable and re- relatable thing. It wasn't a unique thing for people to have vineyards, to have tenants and have servants. It was common that time for a master to have a vineyard and go away and hire people as tenants to take care of it. Hoping, planning, and almost expecting that fruit would be bore from the vineyard. Similar today, that's almost like a rent payment, right? Maybe some of you are a landlord, or maybe some of you are a tenant right now, and you pay your rent each day or each month. If you pay each day, that's a very bad deal. I guess unless you pay a 30th each day, that would work as well. So 
he hires these tenants to care for the vineyard. Who would they be? Maybe you've picked up on it and see where we're going here. But the tenants would be the religious leaders. Look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So there was an intention. The servants were coming to the tenants. The tenants were responsible for producing something, producing fruit for the servants to take back to the master. That was the expectation and kind of the agreed upon thing. Hey, I'm going to go away. Here's my vineyard. You guys take care of it, produce fruit, and I'll come and collect it when it's time. When the season comes and the fruit is ready, I'll come collect the fruit, much like a rent payment of sorts. The tenants have been charged with the care of the vineyard, just as the religious leaders should have been caring for the kingdom of God. If you look back, there's a strong parallel to the story to Isaiah 5. And the listeners would have recognized that. They would have noticed immediately, oh, he's time. this is Isaiah 5. We're familiar with this text. We know this. Listen to the start of Isaiah 5. It says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Interesting story that looks very similar to this parable that we're looking at today. So the listener would have said, oh, I know where this is, I know where this is going. This is Isaiah 5. Like, we know this passage. We know what this is all about. We know the answers to this. In Isaiah 5, what happens is the master comes to collect the fruit and there's no good fruit. Some texts would say there's, there's only wild fruit or wild grapes. The original word for that is kind of funny. It actually translates to stinky fruit. So like imagine like you go blueberry picking at like Bowerman's and you go and you're like, wow, this is not a good blueberry. This is stinky. It's probably moldy and gross. Stinky fruit is what that vineyard produced. I would imagine the tenants hear that and they go, oh yeah, we know this. And then this is going to happen. And then what happens in Isaiah 5 is unique because it's different than what Jesus says. In Isaiah 5, he comes and destroys the vineyard. So I would think that the listener's expecting that. The listener's expecting that the vineyard would be destroyed. But Jesus takes a little bit of a turn and brings something different to clarity. The next people we have in this parable are the servants. The servants would be the prophets of the Old Testament. I love the Mark 12 telling of this. Mark, Matthew, and Luke each have a, a telling of this parable. Matthew kind of like goes a little scant on the details here. This is why I'm going to share with you Mark 12 real quick, because I like what he says more. Matthew's like, yeah, like he sent some servants and he beat one and he stoned one and he killed one. And yeah, like moving on. This is what Mark 12 says. When the season came, he sent a singular servant to the tenants to get them, get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant. Number two. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and him they killed. And with so many others, some they beat and some they killed. It gives you a little more of a, an understanding of the patience that God has in sending one after another after another and seeing his servants being mistreated and beaten and put to shame and killed. These are the prophets. Look through the Old Testament. Look how many times God sent prophets to Israel and the mistreatment of them. 
Some examples would be 2 Chronicles 24, Zechariah is stoned to death. Another one would be Hebrews 11, which quotes, looks back at the Old Testament and says this, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And they were killed with the sword. These servants being sent to collect the fruit of the kingdom, the tents having nothing to offer, And so the response is stoning and killing. Now, how weird is that? Like, if you're a a landlord, I put myself in that situation. Like, I maybe own, like, you know, a little condo association or whatever. I send someone to collect dues at someone's house. If he comes back, like, beaten up, like, that's kind of where the buck stops. I'm not going to, oh, like, you know what? Like, here, Jimmy, you go instead. Like, okay, your turn. Oh, Jimmy got beat up too. Okay, John, go ahead, John. Like, at a certain point, it's like, this is lunacy. Like, what is he doing here? And I can tell you this. I certainly would not get to the end of it all and say, hey, you know what? My son, Solomon, Solomon, go. Get the money from this guy that he owes. Go collect the fruits. But God does this. It's not because he was fooled. It's not because he was mistaken about what was to come. But this was all a part of his plan all part of revealing his son to us, to the kingdom and the coming kingdom and saying, hey, look, this is how it ought to be. I'm going to show you your own foolishness by sending you prophets over and over and you're going to reject them. And I'm going to keep sending them. You're going to have more opportunities. You're going to keep stoning them and killing them and sending them away. So the last person in the parable is the son, Jesus. Eventually he says, okay, enough of this. It's time. Mark's account says he sent his beloved son. He said, surely they'll respect my son. But what do the tenants do? They don't respect him. Their eyes are on greed. Their eyes are on their own stuff. They don't care about the son. They don't care about the fruit anymore. They don't care even about the master. And they say, you know what? This is the heir. If we kill him, then we get the inheritance because then when he dies, there's no one to pass it to you, so it comes to us, right? What a great idea. Let's do it. Let's kill him. I would imagine, as they're hearing this, he starts out with the vineyard, and I would imagine the listeners are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm tracking with you. I understand vineyards. Yep, fruit, tenants, servants, got that. Wait, they'd be his servant? Who would do that? Like, I would imagine at that point, they're starting to think, like, hold on. Like, that's, that's messed up. That's not how they should treat the person coming to collect the fruit. And they did it again and again. And then his son? What? Like, these people, who are they? And what are they doing? And I love this. Looking now at verse 40. Jesus finishes it, and he kind of walks them right into this beautiful answer. He says, hey, so you've heard the parable. What should happen now to these people? Look at verse 41. They said to him, he, the master, will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Like, I look at that, I'm like, that's, that's kind of funny. Like, they don't even see it. They're so blinded. They can't even see it that they're condemning themselves. They're saying, basically, hey, we are the wretches that deserve a miserable death, and you should give the kingdom to somebody else. That's what's being proclaimed here. But 
the chief priests and Pharisees don't even see it. Jesus takes a little bit of a different tone after that. Suddenly he, he goes to Psalm 118, which again would have been a very familiar verse for the people listening and hearing. He says, have you never read in the scriptures? Almost like, I'm insulted. You guys should know this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. I'm imagining standing there and being like, why are you saying that after telling us this parable of the vineyard? Like, that doesn't even make sense. What do you mean? Yeah, we know Psalm 118, Jesus. Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Now, maybe a few, the dots were starting to connect and starting to realize, oh, wait a second. I think I see where this is going. Because then look at verse 43. Now Jesus turns from telling a parable and he goes right at them. Therefore, I tell you. No longer talking about a vineyard. No longer speaking a parable. No longer in, in a way that you may not understand. But now I'm coming right at you. I'm saying, I tell you. The kingdom of God. There it is. That's the vineyard. Hey, look, the vineyard, that's the kingdom of God. And guess what? It's going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You guys had an opportunity to produce fruit. And guess what you did? You produced stinky, smelly, moldy fruit that nobody wanted. I sent my servants to collect it and you had nothing to offer. I sent my son and he was killed. Jesus is telling a story, foreshadowing his death, which is just days later. And they're still blinded. They still don't see it. Just like the builders that rejected the stone that was fit for the cornerstone. What I like about Psalm 118 is this. It doesn't say Sam building his fence rejected the stone because he didn't watch the right YouTube video and wasn't experienced enough to know how to put a cornerstone in. It says builders, experts, people who did this every day. They knew. They knew what a good cornerstone would be. They were going to build something. They said, yep, this thing has to be perfect because this sets the stage for the whole house. We need a good foundation here. We need to be a nice right angle here. It has to be a good stone to be the cornerstone. But the builders rejected it. Not random people. Experts. Experts in their trade. So wrestle with this question. Why would a builder, someone who does this for a living every single day, reject a stone fit to be the cornerstone? The only answer is the exact same thing that Jesus explained for why he spoke in parables. They will hear but not understand. They didn't get it. There was a spiritual blindness for the builders. And the same spiritual blindness exists for the religious leaders. They think they understand. They thought they had it right. But they're rejecting the stone that becomes the cornerstone. Look again at verse 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. As I already said, Jesus reveals now the parable of the vineyard is really about the kingdom of God. It's going to be taken away and given to the people producing its fruits. We just went through John 14, 15, 16. 
John 15, I know many of you are, are familiar with, great passage about abiding to the vine and producing fruit. Only through being, abide, only through being attached and abiding in the vine. You can't produce fruit on your own. But look at this verse. Given to a people producing its fruits. How do you produce fruits? It's not an objective that we strive for or go like, oh, you know, today I'm going to be really fruitful on this Monday morning. If you want to produce fruit, Jesus has to be the cornerstone. That's the way you produce fruit. The chief priests and the Pharisees didn't understand that. They probably thought they were producing some kind of fruit, maybe. Maybe they thought they were doing something good. But ultimately, they had nothing to offer. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Again, Jesus is speaking in terms they would understand. This is verse 44. He's referring back to Daniel chapter 2. I won't read the whole thing for you, but Nebuchadnezzar is having dreams. Daniel is summoned to interpret the dreams. And look what it says. Daniel says this, starting in verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Jump ahead a few verses, and he says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Again, they would have known this. This wasn't like, oh, I guess I skipped Daniel in school, Jesus. I'm glad you shared that with me now, and now I know. No, they would have been familiar. They would have understood this, and now the offense is is full-fledged. You're rejecting the stone, and this stone is going to crush you, just like Daniel told us with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. All the kingdoms before are going to be crushed by the stone. Jesus uses his parable, not just this parable, but parables, to speak in familiar terms, to show, hey, you should understand this. You need to get this. Look at the end result. All that said, they hear his parable. They perceive that he was speaking about them. Oh, that's us. Where are the tenants? We've been killing all these prophets. We know those stories. We didn't realize that was on us. That's on us. We've been rejecting all these things. We rejected the cornerstone. The stone that should have been the cornerstone, we rejected, we threw out. And now, what do we do? Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Such spiritual blindness. I, I, I read that and it troubles me a little bit. Because in one verse, they're perceiving the parable to be about themselves. The very next verse, they're like, well, we're still going to arrest him. We're still going to do what this parable described and just said that we're going to do. It's kind of like when you tell a child not to do something, and immediately they go and do that thing you told them not to do. That's essentially what's happening. Jesus is warning them, warning, hey, look, you're the tenants here in the story. The vineyard, you need to take care of it. 
you're rejecting all the fruit, all the servants that have come. You're rejecting them. You're killing my son. You're going to do it. And they go, oh, I think this is about us. All right, let's arrest him. But they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet, revealing that they understood to some degree. They understood, ooh, there's something about this guy, but we still need to take care of him. We still need to figure out what we will do with the stone. So what about us? What will you do with the stone? We all have to wrestle with that. We have two options. They're pretty clear laid out in the text. The first one is to take the stone and place it as the cornerstone for your life, for everything you're establishing, to have a solid cornerstone squared to build upon. You do that, that's a pretty good option because it produces fruit. But the bigger question, I think, is this. How do you know if Jesus is the cornerstone for your life? I thought I had a pretty good cornerstone for my fence. I thought I was good to go. I thought I had it all figured out. Oh, I got the corner, I got the corner there, so now I just throw this thing up and it's going to be beautiful. Maybe you've put Jesus in the corner of your life and you're building upon it. But a true cornerstone isn't doing its job as a cornerstone unless we're constantly reflecting back on it, constantly checking our alignment to make sure that our lives are aligned with the corner. Because if they're not aligned with the corner, then guess what? It's not really a cornerstone anymore. You veered off. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know each of you in your own personal relationship with Jesus and whether it exists or doesn't exist or so on and so forth. But here's what I do know. There's really only two options here. Jesus can be the cornerstone. Here's the other one. Option number two, what will you do with the stone? It's more what the stone can do with you. The stone can fall on you and crush you. That's the warning. The hope is the cornerstone. The warning is the crushing. For me, I can think back to times in my life where I thought... Jesus was my cornerstone. But in reality, he wasn't. In reality, I was the cornerstone and Jesus would just fit in along the fence somewhere along the way in a convenient spot. I look back now and how do I know that? Because my life was producing stinky fruit. The things that I was doing, the things I was saying, the thoughts I was having, no good fruit. Just smelly old grapes wasting away. Hopefully for you, that's not the case. But for all of us, we have to decide what we're going to do with the stone. We all have to wrestle with that in one way or another. We all have to decide, okay, when I wake up tomorrow morning and it's Monday morning, Memorial Day. When I wake up Tuesday morning, you guys can sleep in tomorrow morning. When I wake up on Tuesday morning and it's early and I have to get up, I have to be at work, I have to go to that meeting I don't want to go to, I have to do these chores, whatever it is on your agenda, are you going to allow Jesus to be the cornerstone on Tuesday morning? Are you going to look back and reflect on him and say, I need to make sure that my day is aligned with with Jesus and his word. Otherwise, you're going to get somewhere inevitably to the gate. 
And I hope it's not a quarter inch off. Whatever that may be in your life, we can get away with it for a little bit, right? We can go through the motions and fake it and throw it on up. But you're going to come to a moment where you're going to realize, oh, uh uh-oh, things should have lined up here. Why are things not lining up? I thought Jesus was my corner. Well, let's look back. Let's go back and measure. Trust me, it's much easier to measure along the way than to look back once you get into a bad spot and realize we've veered off the path. Option one, the stone can become the cornerstone and the product of that is good fruit. Option two, the stone can fall on you and crush you. Jesus desires that no man should perish, that no man be crushed. And that's our hope too here at Summit. We don't want anyone to experience that. We don't want anyone to experience the crushing that the stone can bring. But we want you to experience life and life to the fullest by placing Jesus as the cornerstone. So let me finish up with these questions to consider. What is the cornerstone of your life? What is that thing that everything aligns back to? Is it Jesus? Is it your finances? Is it your security, your safety, your comfort? If we stop and think, we all know. When we come to a hard decision, we have to choose this or that. The first thing that comes to your mind that's going to impact that decision, that's probably your cornerstone. And if it's not Jesus, you're going to end up with your gate a quarter inch off. God makes it very clear in this passage that he wants us to listen to the instruction and teaching of his son. He doesn't take it lightly. Jesus isn't just some fun-loving, New Testament, grace-filled guy. There's truth to that, but there's more to that too, right? This isn't a a good cop, bad cop situation where God's the bad guy and Jesus is here to rescue everybody and Jesus is the good guy now. No, they're in sync. They're one. Where are you not following the teaching of the cornerstone? My hope and prayer for each of you and for myself as I've been studying this week and wrestling with it is evaluating every post in my life. And thinking, okay, if I'm building a fence and these posts need to line up with the cornerstone, I can't just throw the the fence up willy-nilly. i got to be meticulous with each post and make sure it's level, measured, and squared up with the corner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to your vineyard, Lord, even after countless others were rejected and stoned and killed. Father, I, I can't even comprehend fully why you would do that. No, nobody would send another person to be killed knowing full and well that that's what was to happen, but you chose to do that out of your great love, Lord. Father, we pray that we would look at this parable, that we would evaluate it in our own life, that we would consider the cornerstone and what to do with the stone. We can cast it aside. We can reject it like the builders, like the chief priests and the Pharisees, Lord. Or we can place it as the cornerstone and start building upon it, constantly checking back to it, constantly looking to make sure that our lives are aligned with you. Father, we ask that you would convict us, 
We ask that you would move in our hearts this morning. Reveal to us those areas that we need to straighten up and realign with you. In Jesus' name we pray.